Welcome to the Venture Church Podcast. We strive to lead people to be God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. Our goal is to tear down the walls that have kept people away from church to help them build a relationship with God, our Creator. We are so glad you're tuning in today. We hope and pray that this leads you to Jesus and His path for your life. So, without further ado, here is today's teaching. Humor me, if you will. You can all finish this phrase. Actions speak louder than words. All right, you hear it all the time. You see it all the time. People talk about it all the time. It's like built into our culture. Actions speak louder than words. But it's not always true. Like how many times have you been like, hey, we should totally get together sometime. Yeah, we'll cook out of my house. Never going to happen. Like people are just not going to happen. Let's grab some coffee. Never going to happen. My son says, I cleaned my room. And I walk by, I'm like, uh, actually, that's more likely my daughter than my son, to be real honest. Um, but, you know, but actions, like I want to see it. I don't want you to tell me about it. I want to see that you're going to follow through with this. This last few weeks has been crazy since the hurricane. I mean, it's been crazy. And I got to tell you, I have seen action speak over the last several weeks. It's been amazing to watch neighbors helping neighbors, strangers helping strangers, uh, church groups going out and serving, people from all over the country coming and serving. Uh, my, you know, the pile of debris in front of my yard was bigger than my two cars put together. You probably have one too. And uh, these guys came by from the county, I assumed, with this big like crane thing, and they were like, and so they take a break after a little while, and I went out to shake their hands, see if they wanted some water. Found out they were from Mississippi and South Carolina. Not from Wilmington. Now, they're probably getting paid like time and a half to be here. But isn't it awesome that our neighbors from states over are coming to help us? And so actions speak. When people see your actions of love, they're like, man, I know that they care. I know that I matter. The reality is this. I don't want to spend every week for the rest of the year talking about this hurricane. Is anybody else like over it? Are we done with Florence? Can we just move on? Like we're sick of it. But the reality is, it's going to define who we are now. Like, I'll share some other names with you. Maybe you've heard these names. Katrina. Around here, we say Fran. We say Floyd. Now we're starting to say Matthew. And now we're going to say Florence. And there's going to be this moment where it's just like, well, yeah, since Florence, blah, 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 fill in the blanks. And so as much as we don't want to talk about it, we've got this thing that's happened, and it's going to begin to kind of shape from here on for us as a city, as a church, as a community, as individuals. A lot of your lives were dramatically affected by this. Maybe your house was really messed up, or maybe you lost your job, or maybe uh, you made a new friend. And in all of this, we got to decide how to move forward. And so uh, I kind of want to step back from like, let's just talk about, you know, how we all need to bind together, and we all need to serve, because that's kind of like been the theme of the last few weeks. But it's hard to do that. You can't really. Instead, I want to use it as a launching point, like a catalyst for what's next for us as a church family. Like, how can we use this? Did you know that the day the hurricane hit, do you remember this, was supposed to be the celebration of our fifth birthday? Can we take a second just to, like, be excited? Can we cheer? We made it five years. Woo! Like, five years for a church is a really big deal, and we are going to celebrate that. The day of our uh, chili cook-off, we're going to kind of shift that around, make it a big birthday celebration also. Um, but the church being in the city is a big deal. I've been blown away by the more established churches, the ones that have been around a little bit longer and maybe have some more resources, by the way they've been able to serve our city. And so as a response to that and as a catalyst to get us moving, we're starting a new series today called Hands and Feet, When We Are the Body. Because we get this opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. What does that look like? 
And how do we move forward? Um, several places in the Bible, you hear this analogy about uh, the body of Christ, uh, that the church is the body of Christ. The people of the church are the, his body. And it says that Christ is the head. He's our leader. You know, he's our king. And there's this one passage I want to share with you this morning. It's going to be kind of a guiding passage as we move for the next several weeks. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab one and flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament of the Bible. That's the last third of our Bibles, our English Bibles, uh, written to the church and about the church. If you don't have Bibles, uh, by the way, you can grab one on your way out in the lobby or feel free to go get one right now or look it up on your phone. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's going to be kind of a long section, so uh, put, on your, put on your patience caps, and we're going to read uh, from verse 12 to about verse 27. Check out what Paul says about the body of Christ. It says, just as the body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ, because we're all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or Free, it doesn't matter like what your background is, we come together and we become part of this one body. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, Well, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, well, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the ear should say, Well, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker they're indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we, speak, we treat with special honor. And the parts that, we're, that are unpresentable, they're treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving great honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division among the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, Every part rejoices with it. Now, this is the us, church. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And over the next couple of weeks, what I want us to do is each one of us, individually and as a church family, I want us to find our part that we're going to play in the kingdom of God, both in your everyday life and in response to this storm and in the response to the things that come from this point on for you. What is your part in the body and what is our part in the body as we serve together as a local church family? Um, I know that there might be people in the room today right now who wouldn't identify themselves as a uh, part of the body. You, you know, maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you've had bad experience with the church. But in the wake of this storm, maybe you just were like, you know what, I just need to kind of Seek God a little bit. I want to, first of all, I'm glad you're here. So glad that you came. And secondly, I want you to know that there's room in the body of Christ for all of us. And we would love to have you do life with us and help figure out this whole thing together. Um, God's mission is to mobilize his body, to do his mission. Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. That's Jesus' mission in this world. And we can do it in so many different ways.
And one of the coolest things is that even in the wake of a storm, we have an opportunity to use that as a catalyst to drive us to that mission. We can love people right where they are in their hurt. And through that, they can see the love of God. Um, So it's in times like these that we start to look for something, right? The word I want to use is hope. We start to try to hope for things. We want things to be better than they are. And maybe not just Florence. I mean, think back. There was a day before Florence. Remember that day? (laughs) And like there was mess going on in your life already maybe. And maybe it was, uh, you know, relational. Maybe it was financial. Maybe it was a physical issue. Maybe it was something spiritual you were wrestling with. And we all have a hope. We generally, when we talk about hope, what we hope for is for, we wish for things to improve, right? That's what hope is. I wish for something to improve, whether it's like, I hope I get a pony, <laughs> like a, that would improve, uh, or I hope for a better marriage, or I hope for better finances. There are so many things that we hope for. You, you hope maybe to one day pay off your student debt. You know, you hope one day to overcome an addiction that's in your life. You hope maybe to be healthier physically. That's why we make like New Year's resolutions and we make plans with our friends to work out and eat better. Maybe you've hoped to be more involved in your church family, to be more spiritually strong. Or in the wake of something like Florence, like personally, these are some hopes I have. I hope that homes in Wilmington uh, can be restored. That's what I hope. And in the, in the outline areas, I hope for that day. And, it, and I believe it can come. I hope even more that people in this city who are far from God will draw near to him because of this. Those are some hopes that I have. An exercise, an exercise that we've done here a couple times, um, I think we did it like on the first Sunday of the year this year, I've done it a couple times in the past, is we kind, of, uh, we kind of write down this phrase, this time next year, I hope to blank. It's like a resolution, right? And you write it down. So maybe you did that like the first Sunday of this year, maybe it's still tucked away in your Bible or in your sermon notes somewhere. You should look at that, see how that's going for you. Um, and, and so that's an exercise that I would encourage you maybe to try. Like I hope that six months from now, blank. Because then we have something to kind of wish for, something that we're kind of aiming towards. Normally, we hope for things to improve. I don't know anyone who hopes for things to get worse. You know, I hope that this year, I'll like go like 20 or 30,000 more dollars in debt. Like, I'm really hoping for that. That'd be great. I hope to gain about 65 unnecessary pounds. Like, that'd be fantastic. Like, no one, no one wishes for that. You know, my marriage is great right now, but this time next year, I hope it's a wreck. No one's wishing for that. We hope for better things. The problem is hope It's easy to talk about, and it's good, but hope by itself changes nothing. Like, it's just kind of wishful thinking. Like, oh, that'd be great. But there is something that can make a difference. And so I want to take a second and put hope on the back burner, just for a second. Hope's important. It's a big part of God's story. But I want to take that, and I want to take a look at something for a few minutes that really, really, really makes a difference. Action. We started with this phrase. What is it? Action, speak, louder than words. Why? Hope can just be words, but action actually changes things, whether it's the actions of God or the actions of ourselves, getting out and doing something. Every week we look to the Bible for uh, God's most important truths, and so we're going to be diving into a story today that we haven't looked at, uh, I don't think, as a church since we began. It's in the Old Testament of the Bible, and it's a story about a man who totally would understand what our city and our area is going through. Uh, This guy lived in an area who his hometown, his city, was destroyed to the point that they had lost their identity. No one even really felt like the city itself really existed anymore. I think he would look at the situation we have here because of a storm and go, "Ah, you guys don't really have it that bad. (laughs) We we got like decimated. We got destroyed as a people. Um, 
there were other nations threatening to take over this area. The story we're going to look at is a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah. So if you still got your Bibles open or if you haven't yet, grab it, turn to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to shift to the Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, you can look it up there in your index. That's totally fine. It's probably not a book that you've looked up recently. Uh, historically, the books Ezra and Nehemiah were a package deal. Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of the same story extended. It's kind of like part one, part two. Ezra and Nehemiah knew each other, uh, and it's a, it's a story that they kind of share. We're not going to touch on uh, Ezra's story this morning, but a little background on Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jewish man. Uh, he lived in a time when the Jewish people had been taken away from their homeland, their motherland, Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem and they had been carted off first by the Assyrian Empire who first conquered them and then the Assyrians, it was like trading loans at the bank. Like So the Assyrians got like bought out by the Babylonians. They wrecked them. And then the Babylonians ended up getting taken over by the Persians. And so we're 70 years later after the Jews have been extracted and exiled from Jerusalem and now they're under Persian rule. And when we find Nehemiah, he's actually in a pretty posh position. His job was the cupbearer to the king. Now, this is kind of an interesting job. If you don't know what it is, you know, the kings don't drink wine because that's what kings do. But there had to be someone that would serve him his wine. And also, he would taste the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So on the one hand, like you're drinking like wine fit for a king for a living. Like that's your job. Not too bad. On the other hand, you might die at work. So like there's a, there's a trade-off there in the job. But what he had was the, the audience of the king. It's, it's really cool how many times throughout biblical history God places someone in the audience of a king. Not necessarily a king that honors God. Just somebody with influence, authority, resources, and the ability to make things happen. And that's where we find Nehemiah. All right, Nehemiah chapter one. We're gonna kind of skim through the first couple chapters, look at a few key statements, uh, a few verses in there. Um, some of Nehemiah's buddies, particularly Ezra and his crew, uh, had already been given the opportunity by the Persians to go back home. The Persian Empire kind of had a different MO than the Assyrians did. The Assyrians were like, destroy and burn down. That was their method. The Persians, uh, after they kind of got established, they started being like, you know what? These people would serve us better if they weren't dead. Uh, and if they were in their hometowns and they could just like work for us. And so that's kind of began a shift towards, then you get to a little bit slightly modern times when like uh, Alexander the Great and other people start building what is the Greek empire and like, you know what? Instead of killing people, what if we make them love us? That would be a plan. So the Persian king is letting some of the Jews go home. Some of Nehemiah's friends have been there and they'd come back to report to their friends. Nehemiah asked a simple question. It's the same question you've asked everybody you've met since you got back to town. How'd you fare in the storm, right? How's it in Jerusalem? This is the response he got. Nehemiah chapter one, verse three. Well, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. Now, pause there. To our modern ears, we're like, okay, it's not too bad. Like, yeah, I lost a fence in the storm. Like, it's not a big deal. No, this is their city walls. And in an ancient time, a city without walls was not a city. Like, it did, you, you had no, your message to the world was, we are weak, we are, we are uh, undefended, we are poor. Come conquer us. 
Have at it. It's yours. Come get some. That's the message to the rest of the world. And people have begun doing that. I mean, they're just moving in. They're just taking over. And actually, the mess of that wall not being there and the void that was left when the Jews were gone, that's an issue that you see um, hundreds of years later when Jesus is now walking the earth. You remember the Samaritans? And there's this like kind of a kind of a, a skirmish and kind of a racism between the Samaritans and the Jews. Well, the Samaritans are the people that are born out of this time. Other nations moving in and kind of integrating their culture with the Jews, and then it creates this group of people called the Samaritans. And so Nehemiah, when he hears that the city is in disgrace, the people are displaced, and the wall is down, and the city gates have been burned, what he says is, we have lost our identity as a people. Like I was hoping, like many people after hurricane, that, that I could just kind of go home, and it would just still be there. But it's been 70 years. Eyes are good. Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. This is probably his grandparents' dream, you know? And it's gone, and it's not there. Verse 4, Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah gains a nickname right here. Anybody know what his nickname is? Nehemiah's the weeping prophet. That's what he's known as. Because he was so heartbroken over the state of his people in the state of his homeland, that he just sits down and he cries for days. Um, over the last few weeks, I, I feel like I can sort of relate to Nehemiah. Not totally. But, you know, it, it kind of came in waves of emotion. And, and I think that these are the waves that a lot of you probably were on too. So we evacuated and we're in uh, Wilson, North Carolina with my in-laws and my parents. Uh, and I remember watching the storm on the Weather Channel. And it's coming in, and it's first like, it's a Category 4. It's going to blow us off the face of the planet. It's like, whoa. And then it started slowing down. But they're like, yeah, but it's just going to sit here for a couple of days. And you're just watching it. Remember the footage? And those of you guys who are here, and your power went out, you're like, what's happening out there? I'll tell you what was happening. It was bad. And we're watching the footage, and the Weather Channel guys, have you seen the, the joke footage where they're like, it's so bad out here. The wind is blowing. And then like some little kids walking by in the background, not even getting blown out. So we were like, what? And here, here was my, my emotion if this is an emotion. I felt like helpless. Like, what? I can't go home. Like, Wilmington's an island, and I just can't go home, and what do you do? And like, so we're at grandma's house, and it's fun, and my kids want to play. I'm like, I don't want to play. I just want to watch the Weather Channel, which is a weird, weird thing to say. Uh, I mean, I haven't, I'm not that old yet. I don't know, like, there's a point at which it's, that's what you do. Like, Matlock's on reruns, and I've got, I'm not that young. I remember Matlock. I felt helpless, but then I got home, and, and it shifted. We came home. We found that our, our house was, was okay. We had some trees down. Neighborhood was generally good. Um, I didn't know anyone personally who had lost their life. Um, at, at when I first got home, I knew there was some, some pretty bad damage in some pretty bad areas, and, and I started to look around, and, and the emotion kind of shifted from this helplessness to, to guilt. I was like, well, why, why were we spared and not? them. I don't, I don't, I can't reconcile this in my heart. Like, not that I wish, not guilt like I felt like I did something wrong. You're with me. I see nodding your head. Like, but just guilt like, there's, there's a better word. I can't find it. I looked for it this week. I can't find it. But it's just like, I mean, I don't want to lose our stuff too. That wouldn't help anybody. But man, they, wow. And so this, this, like the wave shifted from helplessness to guilt. But then I started getting out and serving and helping. And I started going to neighborhoods like in Cross Creek and Hampstead and up in Burgall and in, in Castle Hayne and some areas. And I started driving through neighborhoods where everything people owned was piled on the streets. 
and their houses have been gutted and, and there's this look of utter despair on people's faces. They're just like shoveling one more truckload of stuff out. And it's just like the, the emotion shifted then because I, I, I served at a couple of people's houses. We got this thing, Dart ILM started and I'm thinking, we're gonna make a difference, we're gonna do it. And then we'd go to another work site and we would work and we work and work and we feel real good about it. But then we'd step away and I'd be like, but there's still like 20 more houses on this street. No one's even been in the door of that house. And my, my emotion shifted from helplessness to guilt to, for me, it was inadequacy. Like, what, what can I do? And so, like, there was this driving thing. I think a lot of you felt this, too. Like, I got to be out every day. I got to keep going. We just got to keep going. We got to keep helping. We got to keep serving. Like, these people need us. And it's interesting to hear, hear everyone tell their stories about the storm. So many adjectives. I mean, everyone's got adjectives for how things, how, how things went. Um, and it's like a spectrum. Like I got a guy that, that um, I sit at a Bible study with on Friday mornings and I got to get back with him. And he grew up in the city. He was like, man, I grew up, I've been through hundreds of hurricanes. And, and so people have that kind of, uh, he said hundreds. I was like, I don't think there've been hundreds. Um, but still, it's like, there's this attitude like, we've been through hurricanes. I'm like, how is that gonna stop the tree from falling on your house when there's like 95 mile an hour winds? Like being not worried about it doesn't make it less real. And then on the other end is a spectrum of the people who are like, they left fully expecting not to come home to a home. So there's this whole like spectrum of everyone's emotions happening. And we realize that life as we know it might fall apart. And so I want to take us there. Like I recognize that's a thing that we've all maybe been through. But I've also been to uh, therapy and spent time with counselors. <laughs> and I know that it's important to say things out loud. It's important to feel them out loud. It's important to do it with a group of people who have all been in the same place. And this is the realization that Nehemiah came to when he sat down and cried. Life as I know it, as I thought it might be, we finally are being released from this exile. It's just not going to be what we thought it was going to be. And so Nehemiah had a choice to make. What will I do? How will I lead? Um, how will I move forward to help my people? And Nehemiah wasn't a king. He wasn't even really a leader. I mean, he was kind of like a servant, really, if you think about his actual job. What did he do? I love his response. In verse 5, he prayed about it. Let's read his prayer. Verse 5 said, Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you this day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess, when's the last time you prayed day and night, by the way? And he's like, I can't stop. I don't know what to do. I feel helpless, maybe guilty, maybe inadequate. But I'm just going to pray nonstop. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses saying, if you were unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. By the way, that's what these people are living out right now. These are Jews living scattered among the nations because just the quick history on it is that their kings and their leaders decided not to honor God and decided to embrace uh, the demonic faith of pagan religions around them and doing all kinds of terrible things. And so there was, God kept trying to help them, help them, help them, send prophets, send prophets, send prophets, send teachers, send leaders. But then eventually the promise that he gave Moses came through that if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But verse nine, he's like, Lord, don't forget you almost so made this promise. 
But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are the farthest horizon, are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. There, your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He wants to talk to the king about his problems because he knows a guy who's got lots of influence, lots of authority, lots of resources. God has perfectly positioned him as a very trusted servant of the king of Persia. The walls of Jericho had actually, not Jericho, Jerusalem, had actually been torn down for over 100 years. I think 150-something years. Uh, The history of how that happened, um, you know, is deep. But like I said, it began with the, the Jewish kings losing faith and it kind of culminated in the Assyrians kind of just taking over and dragging them off into exile. Um, but as Nehemiah saw that the end of this captivity was at hand, there was a chance to reclaim the city, to rebuild, to restore the nation that God had set up for his ancestors. And so he decided, yes, to take hope and to pray. But he said, what do I have? What can I do? Let me take action. You're... Uh, tried to do something for years and years and years and not been successful. <laughs> um, see, Nehemiah's action was not to just run out and just do it. His first response was to go to the God of heaven and say, Lord, show me the way, bless me in this. He said, I want your guidance and I want your blessing. And there's things that we try to do on our own all the time. Like most of you admit it, I hate to admit it, uh, like that diet program that you try to do on your own, like, it's still not working. Even though on Facebook, your friends, it's working for them, but it's not working for you. And you try and you try and try. And it's frustrating, right? When you try to do something and it just doesn't work. Maybe uh, it's happened in a relationship, like in your marriage. And you've tried and tried, but you keep butting heads. You're like, what's going on? And you tried and you tried, but it's still not working. It happens with addiction. It happens with depression and other uh, mental type illnesses. It happens when we can't keep control of our schedule and we can't keep control of our finances. You look in the mirror and there's a point at which you go... I can't do this. I am so frustrated. I've done everything I can, but I am just inadequate. (laughs) I can't handle it. And you fill in the blank with whatever it is that you feel when you stand and look in the mirror. And and there comes a point where we've got to be willing to just let go and let God. I remember the first time I saw that was on a postcard and I was in high school and I was like, dude, that's corny. (laughs) But then I grew up and realize how true it is that I am not adequate to do it on my own power. But God is sovereign, and he's got all the power he needs. And this is the, this is the moment that Nehemiah hits himself. Generations of his people had just turned their backs on God. They were going to do things their way, on their schedule, in their time, and it started to spiral out of control. Eventually to the point where God was like, all right, you don't want me in your life? I'm taking a step back. God didn't abandon them, by the way. There's stories all throughout. Read Daniel, read Esther, read Nehemiah. God never abandoned them. But he was like, if this is what you want, try it for a couple generations. Let's see how that works out for you. And so for Nehemiah, he knew that first his heart had to turn back to God. 
he confesses to his own sin. I don't know what Nehemiah was into. He, he probably living like a Persian, my guess. I mean, why not? But he said, I understand. I've got to turn back to you. Um, Nehemiah decided the time had come for him to take action, for him to change his heart and then to change his actions. Because if the people were going to rediscover their identity as God's chosen people, someone had to step up and lead them. Guys, we got to let, stop letting people steal our identity as chosen children of God. This world is all about burning down the gates and tearing down the walls that God has put around us to say, this one's mine. And you know what we do? We just open the gates and let them in. We say, take my life. I'll do whatever you want as long as I get paid enough, have enough fun and toys, as long as it feels good. And it erodes away the foundation of this beautiful uh, system of love and protection that God gives us, the boundaries of his rules, not to hold us down, but to keep us in a safe place of freedom. And I don't like to allegorize the Bible and say that every story is like just a picture of what life. Like, I think this is a real story and Nehemiah, real people, but I think there's a beautiful picture happening there with these walls and these people coming in and the people of God losing their identity. And I think there's an opportunity for us to learn from Nehemiah and reclaim that. I think as a church, we're five years old. We've had the great blessing of not having 100 years of tradition to you know, kind of get us off the path that maybe sometimes happens in the church. Not that it will never happen for this church. I hope that it never does. But you know what? Even in five years, uh, anybody in their fifth year of marriage was like, I just figured out that I'm married. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I just figured out what it means to love somebody. Anybody hit 10 years and feel that way? Oh, this is what love is. We just hit 15 years, my wife and I. And on our anniversary, we are like, I think we're finally starting to get the hang of this. And then I talk to some of you guys who've been married, you know, 25, 30 or more years. And you're like, man, 25, that's when we figured out. 30, that was it. Because there's always a time for us to check back in and understand that we've got something to learn. And we've got areas to grow. So guys, Venture Church, five years old, let's learn from this nation that was hundreds and hundreds of years old and see what it means to turn our hearts back to God. Uh, things... Um, when we make that decision, when we decide to take action, this is a thought that has to go through our mind. From this point forward, things are going to be different. Change doesn't happen unless there's change. <laughs> That's just plain and simple. And so life can be so painful, unstable, rocky for so long, so much so that it becomes our normal. And we're like, this is how life is supposed to be, right? But then something comes along to shake it up. For us, I think it can be Hurricane Florence. And we can go, wait, things weren't like they should be. Can I turn my heart to God? And can we make a difference in this world because of it? And can it make a difference in our life because of it? And these walls in our life that have been eroded and torn down and broken, they can be rebuilt. They can be restored because that's what God does. Nehemiah is famous for two things, okay? First, I said he's famous for being the weeping prophet. The second thing that he's famous for and more famous for is he's the guy who comes in and rebuilds the wall. I want to tell you that story. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 2, starting at verse uh, 1. In the month of Nisan, not Toyota, I guess. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, by the way, real king, look him up. He's in all the history books. I love when biblical history just parallels with other ancient histories and we can have further confirmation of its reliability. King Artaxerxes, uh, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. 
had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. Well, I was much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king look forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So the king said to me, well, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to God of heaven and then I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And then the king, with the queen sitting right beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. So Nehemiah gets to hook up. Keep reading on on your own time. I hope you can read the rest of his story this week. But the king just hooks him up, just gives him like funding. He sends him with like a, an entourage, like an army to keep him safe while he travels. He gives him like these letters uh, from the king himself so that he could cross the different boundaries and borders as he travels and so nobody gets in his way. And he sends him everything he needs. He says, go, go, Nehemiah. You've been a good servant to me. You've taken care of me. Why shouldn't your homeland be rebuilt? I've got the resources. I've got the power. Go. This is really awesome. This is not the first or the last time God's going to use someone, a pagan king, to do his work. And it's amazing where God sends resources from. And they're coming into our city right now from all over the place. Man, let's, let's receive them as a blessing from God. Regardless of where they came from, we're going to have the opportunity to work alongside people and rebuild the brokenness here in our town. And so Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. He inspects the walls. He makes an assessment of the situation. And then he gathers together a group of people who are there who are listening to him. And he says this to them. This is in Nehemiah 2, verse 17. He says, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Guys, things that happen in this world, like a hurricane or anything else, they're just a shadow of a drama that's playing out on a spiritual stage. Like you think there's storms that crash and hit cities. You think that houses get torn down on the physical world. Let me tell you, in the spiritual realm, Storms are crashing against cities and homes are being torn apart. And the things we see in this physical world are just a shadow of what God sees playing behind the scenes. And he's got his hand in that. And he's got a plan for that. And sometimes it just takes an event like what we've just been through to pull back the curtain and for us to remember, wow, it's not just about my raise. It's not just about my new car and my new cell phone. It's not just about my status in this world. It's about spiritual things. And that helping someone clean up their house is not about helping them clean up their house. It's about introducing them to a cleaned up life. And the things that happen in the spiritual world start to rise to the surface as the people of God take action. This past week, we've been able to, the past couple weeks, as we've started DART ILM, we've had the opportunity to have volunteer teams go out and just work with people and to see the look on people's eyes when they just see someone's here to help. Maybe we're the 10th group to be to their house that week. Okay, good. Because you, you got to imagine what it must be like when the group's leaving. You're just still there. And, and you're like, okay, well, I guess, I guess I'll pick it up from here. 
and to go in there and to bring the hope. In the wake of Hurricane Florence, it's important for people to understand that they don't have to do this alone. It's important for you to understand that you don't have to do this alone. And I'm not just talking about hurricane relief. What is the storm in your life? Is it a marriage situation, a relationship thing? Is it financial? Is it a depression thing? Is it an addiction thing? Is it something that's just dragged you down for years and you haven't been able to talk about it? A deep, dark secret. You don't have to do this alone. The people of God are mobilized against the powers of evil to bring hope. In Nehemiah's case, um, the results blew the people away. Okay, so check this out. There are these walls, and, and they've been down for like 150 years. And the people around there, when they saw that Nehemiah's crew was showing up with like, I don't know, like their hammers and their like masonry stuff, they were like, <laughs> you're going to rebuild the wall? Okay, okay, rebuild the wall. And they start like taunting them and making fun of them. And people are like, these walls are never going to be rebuilt. Let's let it go, okay? Sometimes cities just lie in ruin, okay? Just let it go. But Nehemiah said, no, no, I'm trusting in Almighty God to do this. And the walls that they said could never be rebuilt, guess what? Nehemiah and his crew rebuilt the walls in 52 days. And I love how they lay it out. It's super like, like boring to read through it. And you got to kind of like take a step back and listen. But he's like, Nehemiah set up crews and said, okay, from this old you know, oak tree over there where old Jebediah's house used to be. You guys, you have that section of the wall and you guys take from here to here. You guys take from here to here and it lays out all of like the, the, uh, the spots all along the wall and it shows them which teams did which parts of the wall. The cool thing is not one person had to rebuild the whole wall. In fact, as the thing started to build, more and more people got involved and the team started to build and many hands made light work and a job that people said could not be done was done in amazingly fast amount of time. And you know what? God still works that way today. In the book of Ephesians, we say that God is capable of doing more than we could ever ask or imagine. You know, God, today, after Hurricane Florence, doesn't need to rebuild a city. In fact, he doesn't function around the city model anymore because he has established a kingdom and it's worldwide and it's not buildings and walls and gates anymore. It's people and hearts, and heads, and hands, and feet. And already his kingdom is mobilized on the city of Wilmington. I got to go into the home of a guy, uh, a Marine who hopes to retire halfway through next year, and they lost everything. And uh, up in uh, Cross Creek, if you haven't been up there, you should go serve a day. It's, it's a rough area. It reminds you, like, it's still bad. And uh, so we're working as a crew from, from Venture slash Dart, and we're up there. Um, Maria and Rachel were there. Philip was there. Patrick was there, and I was there. Is that everybody that was with us that day? Five of us. And uh, this guy and his wife and a buddy. And we gutted their whole house of drywall that day in a couple hours. And uh, a lot of other people had already done some, some setup work, and so props to whoever was there before us. But we're in this back bedroom ripping out drywall and I was with Maria and Rachel Collins and uh, we ripped out a big chunk of the drywall and tore out some insulation and they're written on the wall in Sharpie marker written by the contractor who built the house or somebody it said the kingdom of God is at work and we were like dang <laughs> so we called a couple in said ah you guys know this was here? I asked him, like, did you guys build this house? Or was it? Yeah, we, yeah, he didn't know. 
I don't know this guy's faith. I don't know. She just started to tear up. And he said, huh, maybe this did happen for a reason. And so a little while later, we gathered with them in what was their living room. And we joined hands and, and we prayed for them. And afterwards, his wife just pulled me aside and just said, thank you. Thank you. I'm just so glad people are here to help. And I hope to return to them soon over the coming weeks and get to know them a little bit better and learn more about their story. What I learned is this. um, You know, hope doesn't change anything. Action does. But when the people of God take action, it brings people hope. And when that idea hit me this week, my feeling of inadequacy started to slip away. And I started to understand that it wasn't for me or anybody else to rebuild anybody's house. But only to love them in the best way that we know how. Whatever that is for you. And I want you to know if you're hurting today, the kingdom of God is at work. And the action's been taken by Jesus already. He has settled the score between between death and life. The sin that separates us from God can be completely forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And he offers us a new life when we turn our hearts to him, just like Nehemiah. When he said, I got to turn my heart back to God. I need to repent of the sin in my life. I need to get away from the mess that's kept me away from you. And I need to turn my heart back to you. And God will begin to rebuild you brick by brick, board by board, nail by nail, And what's crazy is, it will not look like it did before. And that's okay. Because in those wounds and in those scars and in that brokenness, there's a beautiful story to be told. Venture Church, we just turned five years old. We're just getting started. I'm so glad everybody's here today. I want to encourage you, listen. Be involved in your church family around the nation right now, uh, I talk to pastors all over the place, especially church planters, and it seems that the average person goes to church once every six weeks. And, uh, and that's something that we call like a regular church attender. Um, this is, by the way, you, hopefully you know me. Like I'm not like a gold star kind of guy. Like I'm not like, okay, check off your list and come to church. Like I don't care. I, I want people to serve and love. That's what I want people to do. But, but here's the thing. The more disconnected we are from the body of Christ, the harder it is for us to be his hands and his feet. So you need to be here when you can. You need to be in a small group when you can. You need to be with one another, not on like some scheduled church calendar, but like, do you have the phone numbers of people in your church family? Do you talk to them other than Sunday morning? They desperately want you to. And the stronger we can be as a body, the more we can mobilize to love this city and shine light into the dark places of people's lives and make a difference in the storm. Actions speak louder than words. I would love to pray for our church family this morning. Will you join me? God, you are good, and your love lasts, and and it's strong. So God, in in the wake of this mess, uh, though we may be sick of talking about hurricanes, Father, I pray that you help light a fire under our butts to just act that we, that we turn away from the sin and the things that have kept us away from you, that we, uh, if we have doubts and we have questions about you, Lord, that instead of just ignoring them, we lean into them and we ask the questions. And Lord, that as we move forward as a, 
as a city and as a church family, that in the end, none of us gets the glory. You do. That you get the praise, that you get the honor, that you get the glory. And that all the world can be blessed because you love us. Lord, we love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.